a potential dilemma for Americans helping China advance its semiconductor industry. Will they keep their jobs or their citizenship? Chinese leader Xi Jinping vowing to win the U.S.-China tech war despite sweeping U.S. sanctions. The U.K. issuing a threat alert that's over China recruiting former British Air Force pilots to train their own force. And the U.K. summoning a Chinese diplomat. It follows a protester getting pulled into a Chinese consulate and assaulted. Beijing accuses the victim of illegally entering consulate grounds. Welcome to China in Focus. I'm Ellie Hart, in for Tiffany Meyer. Americans working for China's semiconductor sector are facing a potential dilemma. A U.S. ban on semiconductors could force them to make a choice. Stick to the jobs that help China advance its microchip technology or keep their citizenship. We look into why. The U.S. is tightening its stranglehold on China's microchip development. The Commerce Department is coming out with a new restriction, barring U.S. persons from helping China's microchip development without a license. Here's the group that falls under the U.S. persons category. U.S. citizens, permanent residents, people that live in the U.S. and American companies. The new measure is a blow for China, as many key persons helping the regime's development in the semiconductor sector have U.S. residency. Among them, at least 43 senior executives at Chinese semiconductor companies are American citizens. That's according to a report from the Wall Street Journal. One example is Gerald In. He's the founder of AMEC, China's top semiconductor equipment maker. In spent almost two decades working for the U.S. microchip giants, like Intel and Applied Materials. After stints in Silicon Valley, In went back to China and founded AMEC. Semiconductors are key to U.S.-China competition. These tiny chips are the hearts and brains of modern electronics and make everything from iPhones to cars to fighter jets possible. Advanced chips are also critical for military technology. The U.S. ban drew immediate reaction. Several big names in the industry have put holds on their American employees' work in China while waiting for officials to clarify the rules. Examples include Dutch equipment maker ASML and U.S. chipmakers KLA and LAM Research. The head of the Chinese Communist Party seems determined to win the U.S.-China tech war. During a speech at the party's National Congress meeting Sunday, he vowed to win against the U.S. Here are the details. Accelerate the achievement of a high level of scientific and technological self-sufficiency and self-improvement, gather forces to carry out original and leading scientific and technological research, and resolutely win the battle of key core technologies. His remarks come after a number of recent U.S. tech curbs on China and could indicate how China plans to deal with the restrictions. Earlier this month, the U.S. Commerce Department imposed sweeping regulations that limit the sale of semiconductors and computer chip-making equipment to Chinese customers. This dealt a blow to the foundation of China's efforts to build its own chip industry. Xi Jinping's comments about technological self-sufficiency are nothing new. For decades, this has been among the Chinese Communist Party's goals, and officials have used both regular and irregular strategies to achieve it. But how self-sufficient is China's tech sector right now? Stephen Azell from the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation gives us a breakdown. In some areas, such as in aerospace, commercial civilian aircraft, they're very far behind. 
However, in other sectors, like solar panels, like electric vehicles, like artificial intelligence, uh, they are likely on par, if not ahead of the United States. Uh, quantum computing is certainly an area where China has made tremendous strides in the past couple of years. Ezell says China's behavior has prompted other countries to slim their ties with Beijing in the tech sector. And because of it, there's no way China can achieve self-sufficiency in producing cutting-edge technology. Apple is halting plans to use memory chips from China. This, according to Japanese media outlet Nikkei. Apple had originally planned to start using chips from Yangtze Memory Technologies, a Chinese state-funded company. They were going to be used as early as this year, but only for iPhones sold in China. The freeze follows Washington's latest tightening of export restrictions against China. The U.S. is attempting to cut American reliance on China's supply chain and protect national security. The Communist Party's leader, Xi Jinping, spoke on Sunday, announcing the regime's agenda for the next five years. Retired U.S. Marine Colonel Grant Newsham says the speech struck him. Stephania Cox of NTD's Evening News sat down with him to find out more. He had no olive branches for anybody, not to the outside world, not to the Americans, uh, not to his regional neighbors, uh, not to uh, his domestic audience either. Uh, that was one of the things that really struck me. I say it wasn't a surprise, but it was a pretty clear-cut statement of what he intends to do. Uh, and he is not in a mood to compromise with anybody from what he wants to do. And so based on that, what can we expect from China going forward? Well, it's going to be an even rougher place. You know, I'll start domestically. And he said that you know, this zero COVID approach that he's taking, where you're locking down 20, 30 million people in a city at a time, uh, all over the country, said that's not going to stop. Says it's the right thing to do and going to get more of it if necessary. Uh, he laid down the law that uh, religion in China is going to have Chinese characteristics, uh, which means there's no free religion. And it was he stated once again the supremacy of the party. The party is everything. Uh, and what it was is complete antithesis of what you would call consensual government, where the people have any say in things. But looking at it externally, uh, that I got the impression that he's a guy who is uh, setting his country up to go to war, getting them ready for it, uh, battening down the hatches. Uh, and I think that trouble is coming. And where do you think that trouble will be first detected or seen going forward? Well, he kind of told us in Taiwan uh, and he mentioned that prominently. And you'll notice he got a great big ovation when he did. Uh, he said you know, they'll try to get it peacefully, but if they don't, anything goes. And he's pretty much told us what he intends to do. My guess is they'll probably wait and see the, uh, the outcome of the Taiwan elect presidential election, see if they can get one of their own uh, sort of people elected. Uh, and if not, after that, I would stand by. Uh, that would be my uh, guess on it. You do notice that he also put a lot of uh, attention in to the military, talking about the military, the need to de further develop uh, its capabilities. Uh, and there's so much reference to security. Uh, and particularly, you noted food security, energy security, uh, thought security even, with the sense that nobody challenges the party. And this is what you do when you're getting ready for a fight. Uh, and that's how it strikes me.
And outside China, a parade in Japan is celebrating a milestone tied to a grassroots movement. Over 400 million Chinese people quitting the Communist Party and its affiliated organizations. Here's a closer look. A celebration of a grassroots movement reaching a new milestone on the streets of Japan's second largest city, Yokohama. The event was held to celebrate over 400 million Chinese people quitting the Communist Party and its affiliated organizations. A man who just left mainland China reacted to the parade. Really impressed by overseas Chinese people supporting the grassroots movement, because right now China is under strict lockdown and digital surveillance. Many young people inside China can't work or study as normal. Having over 400 million people quitting the Communist Party is very meaningful. It gives Chinese people a lot of courage. A Japanese politician also weighed in. 400 million is a huge number. Having a number like this means it's pretty hard for the Chinese Communist Party to maintain its rule. I think the regime is in its end days. To quit the party, these 400 million renounced their support for the communist regime through a website. It's run by the Chinese language edition of the Epic Times. Most of those who quit use a pseudonym to protect their identity and to keep themselves and their families in China safe. Over in India, Tibetans are protesting the Chinese Communist Party's 20th National Congress meeting. As the session opened on Sunday, exiled Tibetans living in North India launched a protest. Monks and students marched with flags, banners and posters as they spoke against Chinese Communist Party leader Xi Jinping. Tibet's parliamentarian in exile called China dictatorial regime. They are nothing but a dictatorial regime where everything is dictated by Xi Jinping. The CCP's Congress comes to a close this week. Xi Jinping is expected to win a third term in power and cement his place as the country's most powerful ruler since Mao Zedong. The UK is issuing a special threat alert. It comes in response to a Chinese recruitment of ex-Royal Air Force pilots. The Chinese military has so far pulled in around 30 British jet pilots to train their Air Force. NTD's Kevin Hogan has more. China is luring pilots with large payouts of over $250,000 per year. The UK government said there has been no evidence of a security breach, but officials say these schemes are a risk to the UK and Western countries. The BBC reports that the intelligence alert is designed to warn former military pilots from taking these positions, although it is not against current UK law. The Chinese military is using third-party companies to headhunt the pilots. Among the companies is the Test Flying Academy of South Africa, which has no ties to the South African government. Britain's foreign office has summoned the Chinese ambassador's deputy. That's after a protester was beaten up inside the grounds of Manchester's Chinese consulate. Parliament member and chair of the Foreign Affairs Committee, Alicia Kearns, told lawmakers that any Chinese official involved should be prosecuted or expelled from the UK. NTD's Jane Werrell sent us this report. Why? Footage captured on Sunday shows a Hong Kong protester being beaten up on the grounds of Manchester's Chinese consulate. The man known as Bob spent a night in hospital. The chair of the Foreign Affairs Committee, Alicia Kearns MP, said the fundamental right to protest in the UK must be upheld. 
We cannot allow the CCP to import their beating of protesters, their silencing of free speech and their unnot- failure to allow time and time again protests on British soil. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is a chilling escalation. We have seen continued persecution of the Uyghur, of Tibetans, of Hong Kongers and all those who come to our country to seek refuge. What took place on Sunday suggests they cannot seek refuge here and have their voices heard, and our job is to make sure that their voices are not silenced. She said any Chinese official involved in the beatings should be prosecuted, or if they can't be prosecuted, she called on them to be expelled from the country. Foreign Office Minister Jesse Norman said the UK government is extremely concerned at the apparent scenes of violence and had told the Chinese embassy to allow people to protest peacefully. Speaking to us on an audio call, one of the protest organisers known as Paul said Hong Kongers who were on site were shocked. We are trying to have a peaceful protest outside the premises, not, in, not, not even trying to attack them or do anything, not shouting at them or not shouting anything. But they, uh, we don't expect they came out to you know, take our stuff away and, uh, and, and, and uh, our uh, protesters. The video from Sunday shows one of the protesters being dragged into the compound of the embassy. But in response, China's foreign ministry said that disturbing elements illegally entered the consulate, endangering the security of a Chinese diplomatic mission. Manchester police continue their investigation. Jane Worrell, NTD News. Is the trade war between the U.S. and China really about trade? And is the Chinese Communist Party striving for economic success to better the lives of its people? John Pelson, author of Wireless Wars, says no, and adds there are deeper reasons behind it. We spoke to him to get his take. John, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you back on the show. It's good to be here again, Tiffany. So right now, all the focus is on China's 20th Party Congress, where Xi Jinping is expected to get his third term. But with that going forward, what should the U.S.'s priorities be in dealing with China, especially on the economic front? Well, we have to realize that what we call the economic front uh, is very different for them. Uh, They don't see it really as an economic front at all. And uh, now uh, Chairman Xi does not look at uh, commerce, and uh, technology success as a means, uh, well, he sees it as a, as a means to an end, but the, the end that he sees is not raising the quality of life and the standard of living for his people. So he sees commerce and technology as a tool really to hegemony in the region and in the world. Most countries don't look at it like that. Most countries, certainly capitalistic countries, and China looks like one in so many ways, look at trade and technology as a way to make their life better, to become wealthier, to improve their standing in the world, not necessarily their power over others, but just their own quality of life you know, in the world for their people. That's not really how, uh, how he's looking at it as an economic growth means. Coming up, what would come of a complete U.S. decoupling from China? China's view is success means they become more powerful than we are, even if it costs them money, even if their people become poorer in the process. Long as they create a gap over the United States and the West and free countries, that's a win for them. More from John Pelton, author of Wireless Wars, after the break here on China in Focus.
Welcome back to China in Focus. I'm Ellie Hart. What is the U.S.-China trade war really about? Is money at the root of the issue, or is there something more going on? In the second part of our interview, John Pelson, author of Wireless Wars, breaks down the way the Chinese communist regime views the Western world, and how Beijing uses that lens to push its goals. And on that note of the Chinese regime viewing us as basically the enemy, it seems many in America still view China or the China market as a competitor rather than an adversary. So how does that play into how we deal with them and what is the separation there? Yeah, here's the difference. If you're looking at this, a classic liberal worldview, competitors and uh, trading partners, the success is measured in absolute terms. If you, as a trading partner, become wealthier, if you become more successful, then it's a win. You don't care if the other guy also is more successful and wealthier. In fact, it's it's for the better because that's just more customers for you and more suppliers to you. We don't hope that Korea suffers and fails economically. Even though we compete against them in chips and computers and cars, we want South Korea to be a successful country. We want Germany to be successful. Now, don't kid yourself. We compete aggressively. So we're selling our Fords against their BMWs or their Hyundais. And we're doing everything we can to beat them. But this is a long-term partner-based capitalist trading system. I think the way China looks at it, more of a military uh, context, then success is relative. It's not absolute, like where you just say, as long as I'm doing better, I don't care. China's view is success means they become more powerful than we are, even if it costs them money, even if their people become poorer in the process, long as they create a gap over the United States and the West and free countries, that's a win for them. It's an awful way of looking at things, but I really think they're viewing it the way two countries do when they go to war. When, when you're building tanks instead of tractors, you know that those tractors would have produced food and made your people you know, happy and healthy. And instead, those resources are going into building something that, if you're lucky, will destroy and kill other people. So it won't make your people happier. It won't produce anything. It's, it's a destruction of value. But your hope in war is that it destroys even more of the other side's value. I honestly think that's how the CCP is looking at its place in the world right now. They want to beat the others, even if it costs them commercial success and quality of life in, in the process. And John, on that note, how would it change the U.S. dealing with China if we view them as an adversary? What would the difference be? I, I think... You know, you, t you talk about decoupling. If there was a full decoupling, if we stopped trading with China, I think it would look like a great depression for, for the world, but China would look like it did in 1940, where the people were just starving in mass. Uh, it would be terrible for everybody. I think the only reason there is not a complete decoupling, or at least even an interest in a complete decoupling, is because of that. It would be so damaging that the world isn't ready for it right now. And even China, of course, knows the consequences. So the question is, how can you decouple everything strategic, everything critical, and I think move away from an economic reliance on them, which uh, if, if someone were to say, well, that's impossible, I think they're right for now. There's just too much that we need from China for us to say, we're just not gonna buy anything. I mean, electric batteries, uh, components of electronics, forget who's making the chips, but even elements and and kind of base level uh, components, China still plays a critical role. So we have to 
find a way to separate from anything critical and strategic, but continue stepping away as best we can from just other kind of day-to-day -day materials that just help commerce move forward. And John, you mentioned earlier how the Chinese regime views the economic front as part of its, say, military funding and, you know, strategic values. How much is the U.S. contributing to that or U.S. companies, maybe unknowingly? Well, we're helping China succeed, if that's what you mean. We're, we're delivering products and technologies that are helping, helping arm China. And the uh, entities list and other blocks uh, may not be as uh, effective as we think. There's exceptions that you do need to build in, and those get taken advantage of. So I'm concerned right now that we're actually providing more critical technology to China than our own rules and laws have stated we're allowed to provide. I don't mean people are breaking the law. That, that may be happening too. But uh, I mean, companies that are getting exceptions, getting waivers and delivering things that end up going into uh, military or intelligence applications for China. It seems on that there's three main parts that stand out from his speech, especially over the weekend. The first being really this return to the Marxist-Leninist tradition that views especially America or the West as the enemy that has to be taken out. Secondly, obviously, Taiwan could see it fall like Hong Kong. And then thirdly, he's really sticking with this zero COVID policy, which has already wrecked China's economy. So it seems he's not going to leave that policy. How is that going to impact the economic front, not just in China, but also internationally. You see this, uh, the zero COVID is a great example of how what's motivating uh, Xi's actions is not the common good of the people. Uh, it's it's all, it all ultimately is about power. When he had the crackdown in Shanghai, I had friends in countries saying, do you know why he's doing this? They say, Shanghai, after Hong Kong, Shanghai is the most Western liberal capitalistic city in the country. And this was Xi saying, you have to remember who's boss. He wasn't doing that to Beijing, which was just as troubled as far as COVID goes. But the crackdown went down in the most Western liberal city. And it was a flexing of muscle. And, and yet there he is again, killing the goose that lays a golden egg. He showed he was willing to do it with Hong Kong. It made no sense. People said he'll never crush the, the system in Hong Kong because it's too important to China's economic financial success, and yet he did it, because the value there is more strength and control than uh, than success and, and flourishing uh, economy or, or society. And John, any last words you'd like to add? It's a trade war without the trade part being in it. We have to recognize that even if we don't see this as a war, China does, and that's what matters. We have to, we have to deal with it as just a war by other means. And that's uh, going to require sacrifice on our part. And uh, American companies, financial and, and technological, may not like some of the consequences, but it's in, I think it's essential for our national security that we do this. John, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you on the show. Nice being here, Tiffany. That's all for today's China in Focus. I'm Ellie Hart. Thanks for watching. Enjoy the rest of your week.